Money Shop Project is part of the Central St. Martin's MA Applied Imagination and has been working over the last couple of years towards examining the relationship between sex ed and porn. When starting to look at the roots of a rise of sexual harassment and assault in our schools, it became clear very quickly what a huge influence porn has. The average first age to see hardcore internet porn is 9 to 11 years old. Porn is where and how most children and adults learn about sex. The difference in early experiences of parents who grew up without the internet and their digital native kids is vast. Pornhub has been described as the third largest cultural influencer on our society ever, after Google and Amazon. And it gets more hits per month than Amazon, Netflix and Twitter combined, further heightened with the effects of COVID-19 as we shifted our lives even more online. And yet we don't talk about this. We see the effects of it creeping in, but for many reasons it's hard to confront. Few people really consider the power and effect the huge online tube sites have. They go virtually unregulated, facilitate abuse of adults and children, are closely linked to sex trafficking, addiction and depression, and have been proven to cause a dehumanized view of women and girls when watched excessively. But there is also a growing world of ethical, feminist, equality and pleasure-focused pornography that has a strong community of producers, performers and consumers around it. The Money Shot Project asks questions of what happens when porn replaces proper informed sex education, as well as how we can support parents in having those difficult but very important discussions with our kids. Artworks and creative process are used to facilitate this vital discourse, running sex ed for parents workshops, collage and making events, and we're now putting together an exhibition. To go alongside this show, we have interviewed sex educators from different fields, and we look at artworks reflecting some of these themes as a jumping off point. So here comes my conversation with occupational therapist and sex educator Sarah Sproul. Sarah works with families and young people to nurture connection and overcome the awkward and also produces great short form video resources through her Instagram and YouTube channel. We look at a painting by Norman Rockwell and images by photographers Carrie Mae Weems and Nan Golden. So... To get started, I just wanted to um, ask you a bit about yourself and how you got into the work that you're doing and um, what it is that makes you so passionate about it. And um, yeah, just tell us sure. a bit about yourself, Sarah. So I'm predominantly an occupational therapist who works in sexuality education. And um, so what that means is I have um, a real desire to support families to have open conversations about sensitive things. And um, the reason why that's important to me is because when I was 11, I was going through puberty and I thought I was only growing one breast. And because I was raised in a reasonably religious family, my parents were missionaries. We lived in Nigeria at the time and I went to a a church-run school I, my natural sort of belief around the fact that my body was doing this, um, went to, I must've done something bad. I'm, I'm a sinful person, you know, all that sort of religious view of the world came to rest heavily on the fact that I was only growing one breast. And I just prayed to God night after night that I promised I would always be good if he would allow me to grow two breasts roughly the same size. 
Now, I did grow breasts roughly the same size, and but I was not always good from then on. And <clears throat> I think when I think back to that time, I'm what I'm really struck with is the pain and the isolation and the guilt and the shame. And so when I had my own kids, I, I didn't want it to be like that for them, you know, and um, so I have slowly been working in my parenting. I have a, a almost 19-year-old, a 17-year-old, and an almost 15-year-old now. Um, pretty much from when my eldest was five, this was something super important to me. And um, it was interesting because I was doing a lot of reading and I realized really early on that um, conversations about sex and bodies and babies and puberty and genitals and all that was a protective thing for children to have with the adults who care and love them the most. So there was that really clear, not only did I have my own personal experience about it, but there was this really clear um, research-based outcomes which uh, that children that grow up in families with cultures of openness around bodies, um, they have an easier time advocating for what they want in a relationship. They're more likely to use, you know, you've heard all these things, um, more likely to use um, safer sex practices. Uh, they're less likely to be targeted as victims of grooming and and maybe, you know, sexual sexual assault. So it was really clear in my mind. The difficulty was that uh, the school community where my my kids were, there wasn't that clarity in a lot of the parents. And so I was bringing my kids to school and they had a lot of information and knowledge and they were open about lots of things related to, to sex and contraception. Like I remember one day uh, walking my daughter home from school. She might have been 10 nine maybe and she was walking with her little 10 year old friend and we live in a really sort of gritty inner city urban um, area and uh, there was a used condom on the footpath a condom out of its packet <clears throat> and I remember my daughter saying "Ooh, that's gross to her friend there's a dog excuse me "Ooh, that's gross and her friend says what's gross and my daughter says there's a condom on the ground and my my daughter says um uh, her friend says, what's a condom? And my daughter says, mm. oh, that's the thing you use to stop the sperms getting to the eggs, right? So I'm like, okay, parenting win. Except for the fact that the following day that child's parent came over to our house and was really angry and very upset that my child had told her child something that she deemed to be inappropriate not only that she wanted to have that conversation with her child when she felt it was right and the fact that our family culture um had sort of disrupted the way she wanted to do her parenting and it was in that moment that I realized you know what um this is bigger than just what I'm doing in my family this is so much more about uh how the community can support families to do something different to what they had growing up, which was what I was doing, that um, I knew personally the impact of conversations, maybe just being one or two conversations throughout growing up. And, um, and so I went off and did my master's in sexuality studies. And while I was doing that master's, that parent rang me and it would have been about maybe three years later 
from the condom, the great condom incident. And she was ringing me to say, uh, did I have any book recommendations? Because she realized actually with her second child that she needed to talk earlier and um, she wanted to know what resources to use. And that, I mean, that's a long story that stops at a lot of different age points, but um, it illustrates why the work is important. It's important for individuals Mm -hmm. like me. It's important for families that um, want to build deeper connections with growing kids. And it's important for communities because when communities have access to similar knowledge and information and skills, then the whole community can move forward in terms of safeguarding, not just safeguarding children, but equipping them with skills uh, for consensual, joyful, pleasurable uh, relationships when they're older. And who does not want that? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's generally with my work with parents, you, you, you know, they're really keen to try and make things different from mm-hmm. their own experiences. They're, you know, there's a lot of kind of sitting in that space and thinking, oh, you know, what was my first experience of, you know, having that conversation with my parent or maybe being caught, um, you know, mm-hmm. masturbating by a parent and then sort of thinking about, oh God, how did that interaction go? How did it make me feel? How did it kind of leave me uh, what was the lasting effect mm. on me and 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 then sort of yeah how are you kind of replicating mm-hmm. that now and also kind of parents fears as well about um excuse me technology and social media and um i think that's really true for what you're saying in terms of it you know it's like you have your sort of own individual kind of version of how you're handling that in your house um but then there is that wider because they all compare as well because it's like uh, oh she's got this and they've got this and i don't or i do or you know who's got what um they're all yeah being exposed at different levels and then it becomes yeah much wider and it becomes a much more kind of yeah like community-based mm. thing where potentially we, if we were all a bit more on the same page it would be easier to then deal with on an individual and level. I, I actually think yeah. the complexity is that it's not possible to control everything in our child's life like it is in the beginning yeah. when they're small and really where do they they're mainly in our house they might be in child care they might go to grandma's house or something and so we can put all the corner protectors and and we can make their food and ensure they don't have sugar and additives and all those things but the older they get the less possible almost the, it's impossible to do that and so what I'm noticing in my work is yes it's important to talk about what is age appropriate and give book resources and um, what are the words we use and all those sort of things. But actually the, the skill that makes the most difference in this area of parenting is being comfortable with complexity and our inability to control what our children are going to see and do. And um, that skill or that comfort, that developing comfort is a lot around um, looking at what our nervous system does when we're in times of stress, when we're in times where we feel like our child's life is like in danger or um, or they're, they're under threat. Because it's in those moments when we're just running on autopilot that things are going to come up Um in our attitudes and the things we say and how we can manage our emotions that are going to go straight back to a very primitive, very um, 
young way of, of, of doing that, that we will have developed when we were small, directly related to how the older adults around us um, dealt with, you know, things related to sex or hardship or pain or suffering or anger. And so, um, so it's almost like we have to revisit that past for ourselves, not by telling the stories, you know, we don't need to rake over the hot coals, but far more about looking at our body reactions and going, okay, well, what can I, what can I do about these reactions? How can I sort of reprogram those automatic um, reactions in order to, when times are tough and times will be tough and you will find someone in bed with your kid when they're 17 and you are going to find used condoms and you are going to wake up one night and your kid's not going to be there because they didn't come home when they said they would come home and like none of those things end up with anyone being in hospital or going to prison but they are absolutely part of everyday parenting life which just can push a lot of buttons so um it's the work is really exciting in that sense and it goes it goes very deep this is not a surface level conversation at all no totally i can completely relate as well because i have an 11 year old also and it's definitely um you know obviously every new age that they're at i've got three girls and she's she, the eldest is 11 and it's like every stage that they're at you mm. know brings up all your own stuff but then wow like yeah hitting that kind of mm. tween phase this summer has been something else entirely and i mean yeah so i obviously think that there is a way through this conversation using art so it's what i've been doing uh, over the course of the uh, last 18 months but maybe mm. if i show you my um first image i don't know if you chose to i had a quick glance so yes beforehand Okay, so, um, yeah, so uh, Girl at Mirror, 1954, I think it was, and um, this was originally uh, painted by Norman Rockwell, who is um, an illustrator famous for his front covers for the Saturday Evening Post in the US, and sort of documenting um, very much the kind of minutiae of kind of Americana life, um, but then also um, he was his more famous works often speak to kind of larger um, historical moments in American history. But I particularly love, I really loved some of his images of kind of um, kids when I was little. Uh, this this picture, there's another one of a girl who's uh, with a black eye who's outside her principal's office waiting to be told off but looking really pleased with herself that I also really loved as a kid. Um, but I think this image is really interesting because you've got a lot going on. Um, it's kind of looking at that um, transitional period. She's like, you know, she's kind of sitting in front of the mirror. She has that magazine with the, uh, I think it's Jane Russell from Gentlemen for Blondes. And uh, she's got her her discarded teddy bear and her the lipstick and the hairbrush, the sort of juxtaposition of this kind of childhood, toys of childhood and then sort of the toys of, mm-hmm. uh, toys essentially of like adolescence or, or um, adulthood. Um, and she's looking at herself in quite a pensive way. Um, she's not looking, you know, she's she's not sure. Um, and there's also some interesting um, kind of imagery there with her white dress, I think, as well, when we're looking at kind of, um, you know, there's a lot to be said about sort of purity and virginity and kind of the, the, the girl-woman dichotomy that you can have, which you could, you know, later on translate into sort of larger conversations around kind of Madonna whore. Um, 
but I think this is a really nice image to kind of just get us talking a little bit about that liminal space between being a child and being an adult, that tweeny moment, and especially because I think tween in itself is quite a new concept. You know, there's tweens and teens. That wasn't really a thing even when I was a teenager. Um, and I also think there's a lot here we can talk about in terms of kind of peer pressure and media, you know, her with her magazine there, although magazines, you know, arguably aren't as sort of influential as as wider media these days. But um, yeah, tell me what you think of the image. Mm. Something that I think about is, uh, particularly in the tween time, is um, how parents or other adults raising children can feel, particularly for girls or people in a sort of a, a female body, how there is so much emotion comes up when a tween becomes really interested in her or their appearance and um, how it can often trigger, again, things from the past. Like were we allowed when we were growing up, so the parents who are now parenting this child in the painting, for example, um, were we allowed to celebrate our what we looked like? Were we allowed to experiment with it? Or were we told that, you know, pride comes before a fall, for example? And so um, how does when our child maybe starts getting interested in their appearance and wanting to tweak it or portray a particular sort of version of themselves, um, what does that do? Because now all my work is related to building deeper connections by talking about sensitive things. So if a family is not interested in trying to stay connected to their growing tween who's heading toward teenagedom, then, you know, we can go into the patterns of the past and we won't care because connection is not our aim. But if connection is our aim, then it's um, a chance or um, an opportunity to really look at our um our responses, those automatic responses that come up and just see what we can do about them. Um, I remember when my daughter was starting to experiment with makeup and um, it triggered me a lot, you know, it was absolutely about like, oh, you know, it's she's sexualizing herself, like what sort of rubbish is that? But it to maintain connection, I had to really look at the way I was I was dealing with it. And the way I dealt with it was I was considering, well, my daughter is creative and she's an artist and her canvas is her face. And as soon as I was able to sort of see it in that way, the connection was able to flow again. And we had some really lovely times where she would have a go at making up my face, you know, and I've got a picture where she's done sort of whatever that eyeliner is called. I don't know, because I'm, I'm not a makeup person, but, um, a, a picture of it that I actually really treasure now because it was a point of connection. And so I, I think what this image reminds me of is in a time when a child is transitioning through tweendom into teenagedom and therefore into adulthood, they are doing what's developmentally appropriate. They're doing what's right for them. And in the same way then 
a parent also needs to go through a developmental phase because it's, again, it's that moment where we're having to let go and allow them some um, opportunity to discover who they are. And uh, that's super important. That's so interesting that you put it that way. Like it seems so obvious and yet I've never really thought about it in that same way. Like obviously as a parent, we grow as parents with our children, but then actually looking at it as like developmental stages is really interesting. Like just reframing it in just such a subtle way. Like, oh, like even when, you know, when they're babies and they have these sort of developmental leaps where they suddenly, you know, oh, this week they're suddenly like, oh, doing that. It's almost like, I can feel myself sometimes doing that as a parent where I'm like, oh, I've suddenly sort of, yeah, leveled up to a point where I'm like, oh, yeah, I can I can deal with whatever this particular thing is, but maybe I couldn't a couple of weeks ago and now I've put the thought into it. I've made that leap in some way. I mean, one of the things I do often try and say to my own kids is, you know, is that I am learning as a parent. I've not done this before, particularly with my eldest. Um, and, uh, yeah, and what you're saying as well about building identity is really interesting because I think that's something we don't as parents and as adults in general don't necessarily allow ourselves the grace to understand that building your identity is an ongoing thing it's not like you suddenly hit you know 25 or 30 or something or for you know whatever it is and you're like oh I'm I know who I am and I'm fine and I'm sorted and I can just sort of go out into the world um but I always think it's interesting when kids have such a sometimes a quite a fixed idea that you know adults either not necessarily that adults know everything but that they mm. are more sure of who mm. they are oh, or what they want out like, of life I, I, you know just going back to the painting and the mirror again um I remember I think I was tw- was I 29 or 30 and um I still hadn't worked out how to smile I mean this is sort of wild to think about it but um I'm neurodiverse I have ADHD so and and what I've realized now is with neurodiversity sometimes we need it takes us longer to learn how our face works and so I remember going on a trip a car trip and I had to sit in the back this was when I was 30 um, and I spent a few hours because I could see myself in the side mirror that the driver was using but they couldn't see that I could see and I spent that whole time trying to work out how am I going to smile because I was getting married toward the end of that year, you know, it's like, and I wanted to to have that sort of relaxed smiley face and I'd never managed to make it work. And, and so I think also we need to remember that children are different to us. We may be raising a neurodiverse child child, and we, to our knowledge as yet are not neurodiverse. Um, And so when they as this example, are looking at themselves in the mirror and what we might consider preening or sort of whatever those words are. What could be the deeper meaning behind that? What else is going on? Um, Because behavior is always logical. It doesn't matter whether we're looking and we can't work out. It just seems completely illogical why a child would be doing that thing. There is always some sort of logic behind it, some sort of meaning for them. So and this image also reminds me that the children or the child we are raising, are they're different to us. They are not us in a smaller body. And so how can we give them um, the space to explore and discover who they really are? particularly in that in that phase that teen and tween phase when they're feeling 
not only the sort of impending weight of womanhood, but also that kind of weight of what, uh, how mm. you think others are perceiving mm. you as well, as particularly for girls. And you know, like we were talking about preening, and you know, the uh, the painting obviously has the girl in the mirror and her hair and those beauty, you know, the the, the lipstick or the hairbrush or whatever. But um, like you were saying, they're not us. And not only are they not us, but they're also growing up in a completely different world. I think that's one of the things that I'm finding really interesting. This whole process of my uh, master's project is um, actually uncovering this generational divide, which is obviously, obviously there are generational divides, but it just seems so much more heightened by things like technology and media than, and the world that we live in. And particularly when we're talking about um, sex and, and pornography, obviously the landscape for sex education and pornography is mm. so vastly different. Um, that And it's really hard to get your head around it for what your, you know, the landscape of normality for your kids is just so unnormal, for want of a better word, for us. Um, that... Yeah, I, th I think it's really interesting. That's a really interesting and important thing to hold on to, mm. that they're not us um, and that we have to allow them that space to, mm. yeah, to find out who they are. Um, I think particularly that senior school transition into senior school is really hard because you also go from being sort of, yeah, top dog of your primary school to being like the littlest and, and there's also like you go from being in sometimes a very small environment to an absolutely massive one. All the older kids mm. seem really big. Yeah. Yeah, too true. I thought maybe the next one we would look at is uh, Carrie Mae Weems. Um, I've also noticed that I've done two two photographs, which I hadn't really planned on doing, and they're from similar eras, but I think it's okay. It doesn't matter too much. Um, but the Carrie Mae Weems, this is her photograph, portrait of a woman fallen from grace and into the hands of evil. And... Um, she, Karen Williams, is an American photographer. She was the first African-American woman to have a retrospective at the Guggenheim. Um, she is sort of more famous for this kind of documentary style of photography of kind of her everyday life and her home life. <clears throat> she has a really lovely series called the Kitchen Table series, which is all this table that we... Um, oh, sorry. Well, she's not sitting at the table. She's on her bed, isn't she? There's another corresponding image and it's all kind of a series of photos taken around her kitchen table with her children with her partner with her friends just like they're really really beautiful and it was kind of this first point of kind of documenting um the kind of everyday lives of of uh black families in the states and just kind of just showing that kind of minutiae but also the kind of deeper like you're saying deeper connections and the kind of subtleties in those images um and this is a great image i've used many times uh in workshops because i think it just she just has such an amazing um stance you know she's so she's like confrontational in the image but it's not kind of combative at the same time she's like inviting you in but at the same time being like i don't care or so what or you know what have you got to say about it um her physicality and her gaze kind of reclaiming that kind of typical male gaze like it doesn't feel like we're kind of voyeuristically looking at her we've been invited to kind of see her sat there um and also the title gives us quite a lot to think about in terms of um language like grace what do we mean what kind of standards do we measure women by using words like grace or evil you know what is good and evil and who gets to decide and um yeah her kind of also that physicality is kind of flying in the face of kind of previous kind of historical negative depictions of people of colour 
um, and their bodies and there's like an empowerment to that where she's sort of reclaiming her space um, and her sexuality mm. um, I, I think it's a mm. great image yeah how do you th- how do you think about what do you think about this image it's I think it's what it reminds me of um, which is a conversation I had just yesterday um, talking about um, how is it possible for us to give our children the sort of the skills to speak up for what they for what they want, what they need? So we were talking particularly about daughters in this instance, and um, I was using the example of going into senior school, like so, whatever. I'm not sure what age where where you are, but around here it's sort of around 12, 11, 12. And um, oftentimes one of the rites of passage or the things that kids do when they hit senior school in the first few months is get their first kiss out of the way. And and that will sort of happen generally at the moment. It's organized by friends. And so you're supported by your community and and find someone who also wants to get their first kiss out of the way and and, and that's organized after school. And oftentimes it's documented on video. So it's it's very interesting. But um, so we were talking about that in the context of, well, if you don't want to do your first kiss, how is it possible to, you know, speak up or what do you do to to sort of meet your own needs and not do that? And then the interviewer said to me, okay, but what if you're a girl and you really you really want to kiss and you're in a group of friends who judge it in some way. And it. so I think this image reminds me that uh, some of us, maybe many of us, um, may be raising, in this case, daughter, but it could be any gender, um, a daughter who is very interested in exploring what her body feels like in relation to someone else you know they actively want it want that first kiss they're interested in it they enjoy it um and how does that challenge us as adults raising children you know because for me anyway that brings up the what will people think if they know that my daughter you know was the first one in her class to kiss someone else down the lane after school, you know, like, and um, what, what are the judgments that are, that arise around that? And, yeah. you know, and if we think back to connection again, if most of us who are raising children that we love want to stay connected with them as they grow, then what is the work that we can do or how can we support ourselves or how can we find a supportive community to support us through that instance so we can also support our child because, um, you know, it's no easy thing. Because when I look at this image, I think about some of us are raising women, future women, exactly like this. And, mm. um, and that may push some buttons because maybe in my case anyway, I was raised to be good. And um, to be good, a good girl wasn't this. 
So, so yeah. my upbringing was absolutely aligned with the caption, which is fallen from grace and into the hands of evil. The, my community that I was raised in would have absolutely agreed hundred percent with that. Though I think now that in the work that I do, I understand that, you know, we are all different and, and this is important. Not only are we different in the sort of brain that we have, we're different in, um, in how our sex, what our sexuality is like. Some, some of us are raising asexual kids who will be asexual for their whole lifetime. Some of us are raising um, kids who will become adults who just celebrate the sexual sensations in their body and love to do that with multiple people. And so and between those two extremes are all these sort of different points along that spectrum. And so um, when I think about welcoming diversity in our children, that also applies to their sexual self and um, and how lucky are we if we're raising a child that directly gets us to challenge the, in my case, the, the good girl um, so that I become free of that because my child is unapologetically living who they are, how, what gratitude yeah. I feel for that opportunity to grow as a human. And so much of that is related to mm. shame, to being able to kind of separate and unpick that shame for ourselves and then hopefully yeah stop it kind of being embedded in early for them um you know the image is that you know she's she doesn't seem like she's ashamed in any way i think that's the the one of the exciting things about that image um and it's and also the the the, um, the end of pleasure there like she in that particular image she looks like you know she's i don't want to say it's like an image of her in the midst of pleasure exactly but there is a I don't know, there's an interesting conversation there around shame and pleasure and separating the two and that being quite a key thing. Um, and maybe, especially with the work that you do, like such a, it sounds like a bit of a ridiculous question, but like how, because it's so broad, but like how, what a great way is to try and like build that foundation where we're, pulling out the shame of the convert you know be it a conversation about um you know first kisses and or you know interactions with their peers or um crushes and i mean and the crush thing i think is really interesting because that seems to come mm -hmm. really early like even my um my youngest who is six you know there's a lot of kids in her class who will talk about crushes and and there's a lot of almost like oh i've got mm -hmm. to have one you know, and they're six, they don't really, she doesn't really understand what that even means. Um, but then there's like a, oh, if you don't have one, there's a, a stigma attached to that. So um, have you got any good advice on sort of how you lay that, uh, lay that foundation of um, just trying to kind of eradicate that from your conversations as much as you can consciously? Yeah. No, no, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just thinking that um, to me, when we are working towards connection, one of the one of the things about our culture, I think, is this sort of uh, fix it mentality that if something is wrong, we need to find a solution and then we move on. I think it's quite patriarchal. But um, what I'm noticing in my work is that 
the connection comes from acknowledging complex the complexity, like sort of embracing it in a sense. So what rather than eradicating, how could it be possible that we draw attention to something um, for and uh, for the purpose of giving our child permission to talk about that same thing also? So that could look like um, uh, diet culture, for example. Um, a, a lot of times parents, when they come to me, they'll say, um, okay, you know, I grew up with sort of feeling ashamed about the shape of my body or the size of my body. And I don't that want for that for my child. And so when I'm at home, I will make sure I don't ever criticize myself or saying anything bad about what my body looks like. And I try not to do the same for bodies on TV or in movies or whatever. Which is really great. The issue is that then we create a culture where we don't talk about the elephant in the room, which is the fact that we live in a culture that is set up to make us feel bad about our body that only shows us, Mm -hmm. well, you know, it's getting better, but predominantly thin, long-haired, hair-free arms and legs. You know, if if I asked you to do that, you would be able to come up with with the stereotypical what is a beautiful body for our time and place. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we start introducing and call calling out that unseen force, that elephant in the room, then it gives our child permission to come to us and talk about it. Because if we don't talk about things, um, we're teaching the child or children in our, in our family that, you know, no one's talked about this and I'm sort of noticing things or other people are talking about it. We're not talking about it here, what's going on. Um, so with that crush thing, we could call out the pressure of it. Um, we could say, maybe tell stories. So for example, I was a seven-year-old. I actually did have a crush. I remember it really clearly on my crush was Travis Hayes. He was blonde, curly hair, and he was the fastest runner in our class. And I was the second fastest runner in our class, right? And so there was something about him that was magical to me. And that's all it was, like playing Chasey in the playground. Um, But there would have been other people in my class when I was seven who didn't have that same thing. And um, so conversations can be around either personal stories we've had where we were part of the mainstream and then realized there were other people who weren't like us. And then um, stories that we've had where we, we were the person that felt pressure. And we're not saying, we're not Mm. telling these stories as if to say, like, I felt pressure and I did it anyway. And so therefore, you know, you need to learn from my mistake. No, we're saying I felt pressure and I did the thing and um, feeling pressure was really hard. I remember going home and being worried about it many nights and I didn't have anyone to talk to about it because my parents said, just say no or just whatever. And so, you know, in that moment, how can we embrace the complexity of it, really be able to sit with our kid and feel the pain of feeling pressure to have a crush and, um, and feeling pressured is that that's okay. You are welcome to be here with us and feel pressured and we love you no matter what because life is hard and uh, we know it's hard. Mm. 
Yeah, I suppose it's you literally take the language away. If you're mm-hmm. not talking about it, then there's there's literally no words for it. And then mm-hmm. how can you talk about mm-hmm. it? You know, language is so important, and and we can uphold so much through it without really realizing. Um, particularly with sex ed, when I've done kind of sex ed workshops with parents, um, you know, language is huge. I think uh, I, I've done a series of workshops with parents about virginity and I always think that's quite a good example because it's quite a contained idea. Like, oh, we're just going to talk about this one concept, which obviously then opens up a lot. Um, but it's a great example of kind of um, where language is, isn't quite lining up with our thought process or like we're not quite you know so basically sort of yeah uh, virginity being a sort of concept obviously kind of heterosexual uh penetrative sex and then just kind of pointing out that and how obviously if their children were being sexually active in you know xyz ways they would still consider that to be sexual activity even if it wasn't um heterosexual penetration and then they're just kind of like Mm. oh and you're like so Mm. you knew this You, you know you just hadn't quite thought that far down the down the road about it um and yeah and just feeling that kind of um I think there's a lot of pressure on parents to kind of yeah have all the answers and just feel like they, they know what the kind of bite-sized thing to say is when actually or that we're not that maybe we're not qualified to give a good example uh, example or a good answer when actually just telling them our own experiences mm. or even just reflecting back what they're saying if they are saying anything which can sound like yeah. um it sounds like it's really hard to be at school at the moment and feel different to other people. If you reflect back to your kid, the emotion of what they're going through, it's the most amazing thing because um, you notice that there actually is no need for a solution. It's just about being met in the moment of pain and difficulty. And um, when you get used to doing this parenting strategy and it's sort of a major part of the way I teach building connection through conversations about sensitive things you can actually even phys- physically see the change in a child's body when they feel really deeply understood um, that yeah it is really hard not to have a crush when everyone else does and you can see their little body sort of ease down it's like oh, yeah or they might even just nod and run off and do something. And like they don't even need to say it anymore because you got it and they're, they're met, they're heard, they're understood. So let's go on to our last image, um, which is a photograph by Nan Golden, uh, a New York photographer. Uh, this is Joanna and Aurel making out in my apartment in from 1989. And uh, Nan Golden was... Um, a photographer American photographer whose kind of honest sort of documentary style was quite um new and quite um avant-garde at the time but it was more her depiction of the kind of marginalized communities that she was a part of so she took a lot of images of her friends and the people that she um her sort of wider circles social circles um and I think that's what really works for her imagery like she's documenting a particular time and place in New York in the sort of late 70s um, initially on and then ongoing um, but these kind of like drag communities, queer communities, um, marginalized communities and a lot of like drug addicts and um, not always like the, the you know the nicest stuff of life a lot of the time it's quite gritty but at the same time because they are her friends the subjects kind of there's a relationship there in her work where it doesn't feel kind of voyeuristic it feels very much like 
her kind of telling a real honest story of, of these people's lives. Um, and she took a lot of images of um, people having sex. She did a series called Heartbeat that was couples all having sex, which is quite interesting because it kind of correlates to, um, there's a, a platform called Make Love Not Porn, which is a platform where real couples upload themselves having sex, so it's non-performative pornography, it's like real sex. Um, and actually, Nan Golden has a very similar series of work, um, which is like four particular couples over a long periods of time. Um, but this image is just a, a more general image from, uh, yeah, 1989, and, um, I tend to use this image quite a lot in when we're talking about uh, pleasure and um, female desire, um, partly because it's even within art, it's quite hard to find image, a lot of really great images of like women being pleasured where the sex act in the image is um, being performed for her. Um, and this is one that people often react quite nicely to. The composition, I think, is really nice. The use of light and the kind of the light coming in on their heads and her legs, you know, compositionally, it's really nice. Um, and um, I think it just, I like it because I think it plays with ideas of like narrative, like what is going on here? It doesn't look performed. It doesn't look staged. It looks like a real mm. interaction and they are a real couple. I think you can tell that. Um, and um, just plays around with kind of ideas about gaze and who's, you know, who's looking, um, who's experiencing the pleasure, um, what that means. Um, I guess I'm sort of putting this in here because I just would like to try and have a, a bit of a, a discourse about um, pleasure-based sex ed. Um, I think this is something that people find really difficult to approach with their kids, especially when it's like an age appropriate thing. You know, it's very easy to start off and, and I know schools do this, you know, the school system starts by talking about procreation and there's a little kind of, there's a little walk there that they do, I think around this, well, maybe around sort of nine, 10 years old where they suddenly go, oh, people have sex for fun because it's nice. But that's something that I think a lot of parents really struggle with explaining to their children. It's easy to be like, we make babies but then to to move that on and and lay a foundation of like people have sex because it's pleasurable and fun and you have a right to that pleasure when the time comes um is really difficult um but really mm -hmm. important um so i'm just wondering if you could speak a little to this idea of um yeah pleasure based sex ed and just kind of um any sort of, yeah, those baby steps into those conversations as they get older. You know, I think there's a lot of support at the moment, really brilliantly, for early years conversations around consent. Um, but the next sort of step from there is, yeah, sort mm. of pleasure-based sex ed, which is, and again, only something that's beginning to be put into the curriculum. I, you know, I'm sure you know all of that, that, you know, the curriculum you know, um, at schools this year being only now rolled out after like mm. a 20-year uh, revamp and um, pleasure not being really a part of sex education for the last 20 years because it's not technically involved in procreation. <laughs> um, so yeah, just kind of looking at these really honest and intimate images of, of these people in Nan Golden's work is just, um, yeah, something about the kind of raw honesty of mm. real sex. It's interesting you said how consent education is being rolled out because I would see sort of conversations about pleasure to be like this when you think about consent so sometimes it's easier for adults who are who are raising children that they love and want the best for to <clears throat> bring pleasure into the whole keeping kids safe helping them understand um 
their right, their sort of rights and responsibilities and other people's rights and responsibilities. So I love this image, by the way. I just think it's incredibly erotic and fab. And um, yeah, and there's there's lots more, and there's some with her partner mm, as well. They're great. Yeah. It's uh, I think about one of the ways to access that I help parents access conversations about pleasure is to widen widen the sort of lens of what pleasure is. And so, okay, we're talking about sexual pleasure, genital pleasure, erotic pleasure, but our bodies feel pleasure in so many different aspects of life. And so when children are really small, we can be helping them um, learn how to read their body, you know, feel sensations and understand what those things mean. So um, if a child is uh, jumping on the trampoline, for example, and they are showing signs of joy and excitement, like that, that is a pleasurable sense experience so um so that pleasure comes from play or movement pleasure comes from um eating something that is particularly delicious or crunchy or whatever and, you know all pleasure is different for everybody um and then pleasure can come from putting on your fluffy robe or that deep mm. the deep pressure of getting into a you know some people sleep in these little cocoons that keep them sort of pressurized and that that feels yeah it feels really really good and so again we're giving permission to talk about pleasure by naming it identifying it seeing it using words to describe it so as our child experiences it then they they understand the words and we're doing it from whole different perspective i mean i just glanced over there at my bookshelf what book gives you pleasure to read what what um images are the images your eyes are naturally drawn to do you like colorful books or do you like simple you know all these sort of things that we can facilitate our child to understand what brings them joy what helps their body feel good and you know when we're talking about genitals that's part of how we describe genitals genitals do lots of different things um and one of the things is they they feel good they're one of the ways that we can um make our body feel good and so when children are small we're talking about it from their perspective that they have sort of you know all this they have um the, the opportunity to touch their genitals and learn about them and discover how they feel and 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 what they do and um and so when we broaden the pleasure conversation it tends to make it easier to instead of just having a conversation about genitals and pleasure and sex um it's more about here are all the ways we can talk about pleasure here are all the ways we um we experience pleasure and one of them is genitals and sex and so it makes it easier to slide into as an adult, excuse the word choice, actually, that's really interesting um, because we're not jumping into something here that feels awkward and sort of touches all the buttons from our past, but we're talking, oh, yeah, the joy of jumping into a pool and the joy of um, eating a square of chocolate and the joy of rubbing 
rubbing your vulva against the pillow on your bed or your teddy or whatever it is. Um, And so then I keep coming back to this idea of permission giving um, because when we give permission to have these conversations and use these words and do these behaviors um, in our home where, again, staying connected and um, obviously that the earlier you can give kids permission to talk about pleasure, um, then the easier it's going to be for everyone <laughs> because I'm going to put my hand up and say, oh, that's a much more difficult conversation to have with a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old. In fact, I'm not sure. I don't know anyone. Yeah, who absolutely. Could, yeah. I was just thinking the same. Yeah. And and because of, particularly with the research that I've done about sort of trying to support um, parents through talking about pornography, um, you know, one of the, the key things that I think I found that people found really that I then, you know, we shared and talked about in workshops that people found really helpful was this idea that, you know, pornography has been designed to essentially be pleasurable like when you're a kid and you're looking at it you don't really know what you're looking at but on the one hand it's like oh it's scary and it's new and you don't know what it is but on the other hand also it's intriguing and it's erotic and it's probably arousing and it's been designed to be so um and therefore you know you you don't have to feel bad about the fact that it's sort of triggered this thing in you because that's what it's supposed to be doing and and you know you are allowed to feel those things um it's just the context might not be, be ideal um and so i think it's really it's interesting sort of trying to approach pornography from this kind of point of view as well like talking about it or thinking about it um for ourselves or with kids about um yeah there's this kind of really difficult balance in that like there's nothing necessarily wrong with well there isn't anything wrong at all with being sort of sexually curious um but also then growing up and having to learn to to sort of determine what you're looking at and what the boundaries are and whether it's all right and and assessing how you feel about that um when it's kind of bringing up quite conflicting emotions in Mm. a young person um we actually haven't talked a lot about pornography in this conversation which is funny because that is sort of the crux of the um the project but you know all of these conversations i think are completely relevant to the wider um thing i'm just wondering if you've got any thoughts um more broadly on our sort of cultural relationship with pornography um and uh or you know what you've come to learn from uh people that you've worked with and parents and children um what i'm really trying to dive into initially i was really looking at very specific points about its kind of influence and its correlation between sexual violence and sexual harassment in our society and and in particular within schools because i think that's really key where it's not being addressed um but what i found was that it's actually just such a huge conversation that we just don't talk about. And so at this point, I'm just like happy to have anyone kind of like dive in and, and, and talk about it. I found out a statistic the other day and I'm full of really mm-hmm. horrible <laughs> statistics about pornography, um, of which there are many. Um, but one thing that I found out recently that was absolutely mind-blowing was that um, Pornhub is the um, third most influential web um, presence. Uh, you've literally got Google... Amazon and Pornhub and it's had the largest you know third largest impact and that's mental like I knew obviously that you know Pornhub um, it has more hits per month say than than Twitter Amazon and Netflix combined like there are lots of big statistics but that one really blew my mind because we just don't we don't talk about it we do not talk about what that means for us all and we're all living the Mm. effects of it 
Interesting. Like when I hear that statistic, I'm surprised that our world like isn't more pornified, you know? And so it's sort of like, huh, that's super interesting that it's that large. And yet our culture continues to muddle along and we continue to, you know, it's yeah. really interesting. Um, look, in my work, because it's all about empowering adults to talk as much as possible. One of the main things I try and do is destigmatize porn, actually. Okay, so it's pretty obvious that porn is really bad sexuality education. Like that's clear. But to enable an adult to have conversations about porn um, with the children in their family, no one can do that job well if they're coming from a place of fear and worry and 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 concern. So oftentimes we'll talk about um, the the places uh, in everyday human life where porn is uh, actually really sort of important and helpful, and that can sort of tend to like like sort of skew screw with people's minds just a little bit, but. You know, stories like mm. during the global financial crisis when couples were um, had to live on opposite sides of the world because of financial necessity. People were going away to the Middle East to just earn an income to support their family. Mm. And um, that couple wanted to maintain a monogamous connection. Well, what were some of the ways they could meet their sexual needs while apart or together but physically apart? And then... Um, you know, you hear you hear um, stories. I'm part of a group uh, of occupational therapists that work in sexuality, and there's a lot of work with people with disability and um, and other issues that mean that relationships for them are much more difficult, just because our world isn't set up for people with different sorts of brains or different body types, and they have trouble finding meaningful physical or sexual connections and then then how does erotic online content support their exploration of their the physical and sexual parts of themselves and um and then the stories about uh, gender diverse young people who for the first time ever see someone that looks like them uh in porn mm. and so i bring up those examples not to say porn is amazing absolutely not but to remind parents that um this isn't about uh demonizing this thing it's about um creating open conversations again and building connection and um, giving kids information and support so when they inevitably come across it in whichever way they do and there are three ways kids come across porn they're either shown it they search for it or they stumble upon it the three s's um mm-hmm. that they have some resources uh either resources inside themselves or the resource of an adult who's already had conversations so they can they can come and talk to and i think really that um that's that's the most important thing that um okay our media will get clicks by creating statistics like the third most whatever thing on on the internet and Mm -hmm. that's great and that will drive traffic and um they'll be able to sell advertising but at the end of the day what helps the adult who has an eight-year-old 
um, what helps um, the mum, the single mum of a 10-year-old boy who is just unsure even how to start. The thing that helps us, that helps all of us, is to come back to um, the conversation that's in front of us and remind ourselves that nobody does childering and parenting well when they're in a panic. And so to push that panic over to the side and find some things that you can hang one conversation off, just start whatever it is. So, for example, I have, I'm going to go and get it, hang on. You're probably familiar with this poster. This is the Hazelmead poster, the things you don't see in mainstream porn. Right? Um, yes. And yeah, so yeah. Uh, that's in process of being hung on my wall. Now, I'm a sex educator, so it makes sense that I would have something on my wall like this. But I have a um, like a little poster that I one of my friends did for me, which is about it's just sort of calling out the panic that adults feel about online stuff. And it's designed for kids. So um, I give it to my community and they um, put it up, say, in the toilet or somewhere. And it's designed for, for kids to look at, to remind them that sometimes adults are a bit all over the place and they get a bit panicky about things online. And, um, and you know, to, to sort of say to the kid, like, sometimes your parent is going to be a bit wild and they're going to, like, confiscate your device and they're going to do all these things. And the reason why they're doing it is because maybe they've forgotten some of the really great things about being online. And so it's a reminder that instead of focusing on the the disaster and the pain and the awfulness, how can we mm. see all the different sides to this, which then allows us to build that connection by opening conversations. Yeah, particularly because there's no point in, you know, it's like the demonization is almost mm-hmm. pointless. Like we all, you know, everyone is aware of the situation. It's there. It's just like, let's just accept it. You have to accept that your children, I think there's a big misconception that you can just put kind of parental controls on things and then forget about no. it. And it's just really, it just, it's yeah. not the case. Like I often just say to people, you should just pretend that there aren't any yeah. parental controls in your mind because they'll circumnavigate them before you know it. There's always yeah. a loophole. You know, you just have to assume that they're going to see it and that they need to, to, to talk to them about it. It's interesting what you're saying to you because I think it really, you could almost uh, sub out porn and just put social media in, in that conversation. But, and one of the things that I often advocate for is that, um, again, it's coming for your children. They're going to have it <laughs> really realistically. Um, mm-hmm. And there are ways to curate social media feeds to be positive. There's lots of really, I mean, there's lots of brilliant sex educational content yeah. on TikTok, on Instagram. Um, and yes, that might not be what your 11 year old wants to look at on TikTok, but but it is there and and it's not always going to be awful. And so it's like teaching them the skills to yeah discern what they're looking at and um, understand algorithms and curate a nice little bubble for themselves um, so that hopefully, yeah, they can they can learn from it and uh, and utilize it in a good way. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was really great to um, have a chat. Thanks so much, Sarah. See ya. Bye for now. So if you'd like to access more of Sarah's work, you can check out sarahsproul.com or her YouTube channel or I am Sarah Sproul on Instagram. If you'd like to learn more about Money Shot, you can have a look at Mother Projects. That's M-U-V-A dot projects on Instagram. And until next time, thanks for listening.